keep us. In Christ's name, amen. All right, well, we are returning to um, the book of 1 Corinthians, so you might want to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And one of the questions sometimes we ask ourselves, especially in our in, in an entry points class, and, and I ask this to some of my classes, and, and the question is, what is a church? What makes a church a church? Um, you know, and of course people will get smart and say, well, wherever two or three are gathered in my name, and it's like, well, that's not really, I don't know, I don't think that's a church, but what is a church? Well, traditionally, or at least in, in the Reformed tradition, um, the church has been identified by three key, key characteristics. And the first one is the right preaching of God's Word, the right observance of the sacraments, and a third one, the right application or the right observance of church discipline. And so um, that's where we're going to be for, for a bit in our in our study of God's Word in 1 Corinthians. But before we get there and and delve into our text, let me remind you, because it's been a month since we were in 1 Corinthians, and some of you may have um, forgotten, or maybe you weren't here, to to hear about the the first four chapters of the book of 1 Corinthians. So Paul, in in his first letter to the Corinthians, he, he writes and he gives a very brief introduction and then he immediately gets into the issue of divisions within the church. And the people were um, portraying themselves as wise. They were reliant upon the wisdom of men and not upon the wisdom of God. They were um, uh, These divisions had caused schisms within the church. But at the heart of the people were saying, well, I follow this famous teacher, I follow that famous teacher, um, and so therefore there was an air of superiority that my teacher is superior to you, your teacher. I follow Paul, yeah, well, I follow Peter. Peter's pretty much the big cheese in the church. And then others in their arrogance would say, yeah, well, I follow Christ, so I trump you all. And there was this division and this schism going on. But at the heart of this division was the issue of pride and arrogance. And we see this uh, in, in the first four chapters. We actually see this idea of arrogance being brought up in chapter 4, verse 6, chapter 4, verse 18, and 19. And as we're going to see, this idea of arrogance is a big deal for Paul. In fact, maybe I'm getting ahead of myself. Paul only uses this word arrogance six times in all of his writings, once in the book of Colossians and five times in the book of First uh, Corinthians, and four of those are in the first five chapters. So I think pride and arrogance has something to do with this idea of, uh, um, uh, of their sin that Paul is going to be addressing arises out of their arrogance. So whether it's division or some of the topics we'll talk about today, this at its heart, the problems in Corinth were were due to their arrogance. They claimed to be wise. They claimed to be mature. We're mature Christians. But Paul diagnoses the church and informs them that the the presence of factions, the presence of these schisms amongst you proves that you aren't mature at all, but you're babes in Christ. You are infants. You claim to be wise. You claim to be mature. But if you were mature, these divisions wouldn't exist. And so Paul 
uh, spends uh, the first four chapters um, correcting their misdiagnosis of themselves and also addressing the resultant um, effect of their arrogance. Now, one of the things we should note is that Paul really loves the Corinthian people. He loves this church. And because he loves this church, he is willing to say hard things to them. In fact, chapter 4, verse 14, we read this. Paul writes, I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. My goal isn't to shame you or to put you down. My goal isn't to, you know, one-up you. My goal is I love you and I, and I want to see you grow. I want to see you follow Christ and find him utterly and completely sufficient. And so I'm willing to say hard things. So that's kind of the background. You can go back and look at some of our our messages or or just read those four chapters yourself. But let me give you a little bit of preview of where we go. It'll be a fairly lengthy preview because what's happening is we're going to start a whole new section now. In fact, chapter 5 through chapter 7, we're going to, uh, it's kind of going to be a, a, a single unit. And uh, so Paul has addressed how pride has brought division into the church. Now he's going to address the effects of arrogance in the realm of sexual immorality and the church's response to that. So before I get going, let me just make sure that we define some terms. This will be very G-rated um, and maybe PG, but no more than, than that. Um, but let's talk a little bit about what Paul is going to be dealing with and define one or two very, or a very important term. And Paul deals with this issue of sexual immorality. And it is a broad term. That's a very broad term. Uh, the, the Greek word is pornea. You maybe some of you are familiar with that. And it's a broad term that um, refers to really any sexual sin. Any kind of sexual sin. There are subcategories that Paul identifies specifically, but uh, sexual immorality, when we see that in Scripture, it is a broad term um, that includes pretty much anything, any sexual activity that God has not prescribed. So instead of getting into all of the subcategories of sexual sin, let me just tell you or share with you God's one one approved, I guess divinely approved um, realm for sexual activity. And that is in the covenant of marriage between a husband and a wife. Everything outside of that falls under this broad term of sexual immorality. All right? Husband and wife in the covenant of marriage, um, that is the the one divine um, means by which that God has ordained for his people. Everything else would be this pornea, sexual immorality. Now, Paul is going to deal with this, but one of the things that Paul is really going to focus on is the church's response. How has the church responded? And that really is going to take up the bulk of what Paul is going to deal with in chapter 5. So, um, in fact, this is really to the church. um, And are you dealing 
with these issues in a godly way. All right. So that's kind of where we're going to be going for the next few weeks. We're going to see um, this issue of sexual intimacy from chapter 5 through chapter 7. Um, a little bit, he takes a bit of a rabbit trail. We're not surprised. Paul often takes little rabbit trails, and he does in chapter 6. He goes off onto lawsuits amongst brothers, and then he comes back to uh, the issue of physical intimacy. And in chapter 7, he'll actually deal with um, how husbands and wives are to um, uh, behave or um, function in this uh, um, in this realm. So, now you may have noticed that I've I've titled this this sermon um, "The Grace of Discipline," and and it, and it was intentional, obviously, but it was very intentional. The grace of discipline. Oftentimes in our church, you, you will hear us talk or use the term "means of grace." Um. And means of grace, what we mean by means of grace is these being the God-given means by which believers grow in grace and the knowledge of our Lord. Nick um, Batzig writes this. I think this is a good way of putting it. It says, means of grace are God's appointed instruments by which the Holy Spirit enables believers to receive Christ and, little spelling error there, the benefits of redemption. I thought that was a nice way of putting or defining means of grace. So typically uh, some of the, the means of grace that we might refer to in this church, the first one would be corporate public worship. It is one of the means that we gather as God's church, God's people gather at God's invitation and in God's place to be nourished in God's presence and by his word and through prayer. And so we gather together. This is one of the means by which God has prescribed that we would grow in him and that we would learn of him and we would learn to love him and love his people. But of course, some of the others, the more traditional ones would be scripture. Reading scripture would be a means of grace. It is a means that God has given us to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Preaching would be a means of grace. It is a means by which God strengthens his people. The ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper, it would be a means or two means by which God... Um, uh, helps us to see and recognize his goodness and mercy. Prayer, of course, would be a means of grace, that um, uh, a means by which, as believers, we receive Christ and the benefits of his salvation. And I'm going to add church discipline as a means of grace, that this is one of the God-given instruments by which his people are strengthened and nourished and we receive the benefits of Christ through church discipline. So it is a means of grace. Like we said, what is a church? A church um, is where the word of God is properly preached, the ordinances are properly observed, and discipline is properly applied. It is a means of grace. So, 
There's my rather lengthy introduction. Let's go ahead and uh, I'm going to read the entirety of chapter 5, although it's only 13 verses, but let's, I'm going to look, we're going to only look at the first five verses today, but I want to read the entire chapter. I think it will be helpful for us. Listen to the word of the living God. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among the pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from you, from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy or the swindlers or the idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of this world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. Amen. So Paul begins this section with a crisis, identifying the crisis. The crisis is, it is actually reported. I think he's somewhat surprised. In other words, this is public. And it has come to Paul's attention. Paul is not in Corinth at the time. Um, Paul is elsewhere, probably in Ephesus, and it has been reported to him, perhaps by uh, uh, the family that has been kind of informing Paul about some of the troubles that's going on in the Corinthian church. It's referred to as Chloe's people. Perhaps Chloe's people have reported that there's this thing going on in our church, Paul, and you should probably be aware of it. It is actually reported. And the... The only word I can use, and I've used this one other, this word one other time, it's a British word, and it's when we were in the book of Galatians, and it's the word gobsmacked. And it just means to be astonished, or to be astounded. I cannot believe this. Paul is astounded that this type of activity is actually present amongst the church. He's going, I'm amazed. It's actually reported that this is happening among you. And Paul is implicating the entire church. And he's especially amazed due to the nature of the sin. So he's gobsmacked. It's like, oh my goodness, really? How could this happen? And by the way, let me just, I'm going to give away a little bit. It's not that how did this Sin happened, but how did the church not respond to it? By the way, this is all about the church. Well, not all. It is about how the church is responding to this. And he's, he's amazed. How is this happening? And he says this, uh, 
it, the nature of the sin is that even pagans consider this off the charts. This is a, this is taboo even amongst the sexually immoral Corinthians. Even these guys would say, yeah, you've gone way too far. Even pagans are like, oh no. And a man has his father's wife. More likely this is the, the individual stepmother. There are a number of reasons, uh, we might conclude that, but it's probably his stepmother. And the way that the, the sentence is structured is that this is ongoing. It wasn't something that happened once, but more likely than not, you have a man who is has taken up residence with his stepmother. And likely, she's not a believer, but he is. And the reason we conclude that he's the believer and she's not, two reasons. First of all, it is the man who is implicated. And this is addressed to the man. Or it's when it's talking about the action that the church should take, it is action against the man, not the woman. And then that follows, and we'll talk about this next week, where Paul says, I don't judge people who are outside the church. God will judge them. This is all about those who are inside the church you're to deal with. So the man is probably a church member. The woman is not. So Paul leaves her alone. She's outside the church. We have nothing to do with her. Let God deal with that. But there's a guy in your midst. That's the person you need to deal with. So probably this is ongoing uh, relationship um, that needs the church's um, attention. So, Paul begins with being gobsmacked. I can't believe this is happening in your midst as a continual action. And then he says this, and you are arrogant. This is that, this is the word, it just literally means to be puffed up. I don't know, I think of a bag of chips. Sorry, maybe I was hungry when I was doing this, but right, you get a bag of chips and it's all air and you open it up and there's nothing in there. You're arrogant, you're puffed up. Again, this is an important word for Paul. He uses this a lot in the first few five chapters of the book of First Corinthians. And um, he used it um, to, um, to rebuke the Corinthians for their man-centered, their reliance on man-centered philosophy. Um, their boasting was, look how great we are. We have relied on human wisdom to guide us. And Paul is saying, that's just, you're arrogant. You need to be relying not on man-centered wisdom, but upon the cross of Christ. In other words, what has happened is the Corinthians have substituted the core truth of Christ crucified for human wisdom, and it resulted in the toleration of gross immorality. So the problem here is that the church is tolerating this, and Paul is saying, because you're arrogant, because you're puffed up, because you're proud, you're tolerating this thing that should not be um, resident within you. So, their response, Paul saying, I'm, I'm amazed that this is happening, and I'm even more amazed that you're arrogant, that you tolerate this. I think there's a little sense of divine fear in Paul, um, I, because as you, as you look through the scripture, you will see that 
Uh, pride and destruction are companions. The, the Corinthian church is proud. They are arrogant. And Paul is saying, well, if you're proud and arrogant and not doing anything about it, the next thing that happens is God's judgment. Look at um, 2 Chronicles 26.16 and also 2 Chronicles 32.24-25. This is, uh, But when he was strong, he grew proud to his own destruction. And then 2 Chronicles 32.25 we see the chronicler writing, but Hezekiah did not make return according to the benefit done to him, for his heart was proud. Therefore, wrath came upon him and Judah and Jerusalem. And I think Paul is seeing there is a connection. You are arrogant. You are tottering on the brink of destruction. Revelation chapter 2, um, verse 20 through 23, we see the... Uh, the church at Thyatira, and Paul writes this, he says, but I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed and those who commit adultery with her, I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. I will strike her children dead and all the churches will know that I am he who searches the mind and the heart and I will give to each of you according to your works. And so I think Paul in, in many ways is, is acting as Moses did when the people were sinning and he'd run into their midst to make intercession on their behalf knowing that if you continue in this, God's wrath is going to fall upon you. So Paul is not only gobsmacked and amazed, he is acting as a a mediator to hopefully stem the tide of God's judgment upon these people. The pride and the resultant toleration of dishonorable acts is threatening this community. One of the questions that, that comes up then is how is this arrogance, how is this pride um, being displayed. And there's been a couple of ways this has been addressed. And the first one, perhaps the most common way um, that people have suggested this arrogance being displayed is through bravado. In other words, um, like we see in chapter 6, verse 12, where Paul writes, all things are lawful for me, but all, not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. And so based on that and a few other thoughts, people have been saying, well, what's happening now is the church is bragging about how tolerant they are. They see this this activity happening, and instead of being ashamed by it, they're saying, oh, look how open and tolerant, and look how... Uh, How loving we are. After all, we're saved by, we're not under the law, but we're under grace. And so we have the freedom to do whatever we want. This would be kind of the idea of what many have termed the the, the free grace, that I'm saved and so now I can live however I want. And that would be a very, very, I can now live without boundaries. And that is one way that people have suggested the Corinthian church is expressing their arrogance. Um, I tend to go a little different direction and it's, it's, it's a little bit more nuanced. And I don't think that they're boasting despite the immorality. I think they're boasting 
because of it. In other words, earlier in the, in the book, Paul had challenged the Corinthians because they were boasting in how mature they were. And he says, you're not mature because there's divisions. If you were mature, there wouldn't be divisions among you. And I think the same idea is holding here. You say that you're mature Christians, but if you were mature Christians, this thing would not be tolerated in your midst. How can you boast of your spiritual maturity when this type of thing is happening under your noses? You aren't mature. You, you are babes in Christ still. You're arrogant. You're puffed up. It's time to humble yourself. I mean, even this act has not disturbed their proud self-satisfaction. And so the problem is not that they tolerated or celebrated the sin, but they just ignored it. Yeah. So it's actually reported that that there's sexual activity or sexual immorality amongst you and of kind that's not even tolerated by the pagans. For man has his father's wife and you're arrogant. Paul says this, ought you not rather to mourn? So here's the problem. Instead of being puffed up or instead of ignoring it, you ought to mourn. Mourning is, is, is an action. It's not just a feeling. Mourning is a, and by the way, this would be corporate mourning. The entire church. He's not telling one person. He's not telling the pastor or the elders. He's saying you as a church body should be grieved over this. Not arrogant, not puffed up, not like this is something that we either put up with or celebrate. You ought to be on your face mourning over this sin. And the whole community should be grieving. The whole Christian community in Corinth should be grieving this. And I think that this actually, this mourning would be in one sense a, a type of church discipline. Because a formal state of mourning would make, make a public objective statement to all including the unrepentant, that such action is intolerable. So when they mourn, they are saying to everybody, this is an intolerable act, including the guy who's involved in it. He now realizes, oh, it's not being ignored, it's not being celebrated, it is being grieved. And hopefully then, the perpetrator would feel the weight of the community displeasure, and he would then turn from his way. So mourning... uh, would be the proper response, but I also think there is a redemptive or a recon- uh, 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 the idea that this also might bring restoration to the, to the individual. And so Paul says, you ought to be mourning, and then he says, remove, uh, let him who has done this be removed from among you. Now this uh, gets challenging. We'll deal with it probably in more detail next week. But the act of expunging the evil man from their assembly would would, um, exhibit a, quote, purifying effect on the assembly in whom the Holy Spirit dwells. Remember, Paul has said, you, the church, are the temple of the Holy Spirit, and you are allowing this activity to occur in the midst of the temple of the Holy Spirit. So, without getting graphic, Think of the temple or the tabernacle and the Holy of Holies and immoral acts being perpetrated in the Holy of Holies. Paul is saying, I can't even, I'm gobsmacked. That would never happen. What would you do? You would purge that. You'd kick that type of activity out 
of the Holy of Holies. And the Spirit now would be free to carry on his supernatural work. So, two actions that they they were to take. They were to mourn and they were to remove. Now, just a quick summary of of this particular section. And this is, a, uh, I I think, a a good word from, from John MacArthur. And he writes this. He says, Discipline is not inconsistent with love. It is lack of discipline, in fact, that is inconsistent with love. The Lord disciplines his children because he loves them. And we will discipline our brothers and sisters in the Lord if we truly love him and truly love them. Remember, Paul writes, I'm not writing these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you that you would be beloved children. I'm, I'm admonishing you as my beloved children. What parent does not admonish his children? In fact, if you don't, you don't love your kids. Paul is saying, listen, man, you, I'm admonishing you as beloved children. So, that's kind of our first main point. That's the crisis that's happening. I think we should be... Very familiar with that now. But then Paul gives some instructions. And let me, as I get into Paul's instructions, let me just go ahead and um, um, just comment that what is to follow is very, very difficult passages to interpret. The grammar is extremely difficult. And, uh, yeah. I'll just leave it at that. Very difficult. So I'm going to do my best with it. Um, Paul begins by saying, For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. So Paul is saying, I'm absent in, in body, but I'm, I'm present in spirit. And I kind of wrestled with that. But the idea here is that Paul is truly present by his love and by the presence of his letter. Uh, Because they have the letter, Paul is, in essence, present. They know his position. They know his love for them, and they know his position. And so Paul is saying, well, I'm not with you physically. You know where I stand on this. You know my spirit. You know my heart on this matter. Why? Because we're going to learn he's already written to them about these types of issues, but also they have this letter in their midst. And so the idea here then is that geographical distance does not make Paul any less a disciple, nor does geographical distance lessen Paul's authority. Just because Paul is over in, in Ephesus does not mean he is not or he is any less an apostle of Jesus Christ and has the authority to speak on this matter. He can speak, thus saith the Lord, even though he is not physically present with them. So he's saying, man, I may not be there in body. I am there in spirit. And what I am saying has authority. Let me just kind of throw this in, maybe a sanctified rabbit trail here. Not only does geographical distance not hinder apostolic authority, neither does chronological distance. In other words, just because Paul, 
the apostle or other apostles or authoritative inspired authors of scripture, even though they may have written 2,000 years ago, their words are still authoritative. So Paul may not be here and he may have written a long time ago, but there is no chronological distance to his authority. It's not like his authority waned over time and now it's no more. No, Paul is still saying, thus saith the Lord, and it is still applicable today. I say that because when we get into this issue of um, sexual freedom and sexual uh, immorality, people are saying, yeah, but see, that's an old book. And in this new society, we're much more enlightened. And like, they didn't know I mean, it's like everything that's being celebrated today has been going on for a long time. It's not like the New Testament writers were, gee, I'd never thought about that. No, they were aware of everything. And so Paul is saying or that there is this chronological distance um, does not diminish the authority of what Paul has said or any other biblical writer. Paul said, thus saith the Lord, it's good for today, even though he wrote it 2,000 years ago. So geographical distance does not limit Paul's authority, um, nor does chronological distance. I wrote this, antiquity does not diminish authority. So as I'm researching this, it's amazing. Well, you know, that's old-fashioned, that's puritanical, that's under a very narrow view, but we're enlightened today, and we have different, more open views that are much more liberating and much more... Um, conducive, or in other words, that was then, this is now. You should understand Paul culturally, and they had their reasons, but we don't need to abide by them. Paul is saying, I'm, I'm an apostle, and I say, thus saith the Lord, and my geographical distance does not diminish my authority, and I'm just going to add that his chronological distance does not diminish his authority either. So, though I'm absent in body, I'm present in spirit, and if present, I've already pronounced judgment on the one who did this thing. And then he goes on and says, when you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present, and the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man over to Satan. So Paul says, when you are assembled, one of the things we should note, that this is something that the church does corporately. This is not something that is limited to the to the elders or to a pastor or to a subcommittee within the church. The church gathers and there's some debate as to whether is this in the regular meeting of the church on the Lord's Day worship or is this a special meeting that is being held when the church is gathered and they make these decisions? I don't know. It's not clear. But at some point, the church gathers and they make this they go through this uh, protocol. The entire church, including the man, are to carry out this judgment. And so Paul is saying, I'm present with you and so is the power of Jesus. And when you are gathered and the power of Christ is in your midst, you are to purge the evil from your midst. This is no doubt perhaps one of the most difficult things a church will ever do. Ever. This is why in Matthew 18, 20, 
Jesus says this, and you all know Matthew 8, well, maybe you don't, but Matthew 18, the latter part of Matthew 18 deals with um, the issue of, of discipline. How do we deal with an erring or a sinning brother? And you may have heard, you know, you go to the person individually, and then you go to the person with one or two witnesses, and eventually you take it to the church. And it's in that context that Jesus says these very famous words that are always misapplied. Where two or three are gathered in my midst, or gathered in my name, I am with them. I want you to understand the context in which Jesus is saying that. He's not just saying that any time two or three are gathered, I'm in their midst. First of all, the problem is, is Christ is present if two or three aren't gathered. If you're walking alone in the desert and you're a believer, Christ is present. You don't need, well, man, if I wish I'd met another guy, somebody out here. Then we would have two or three and Christ would be with me. It's like, no, he's already present. The context is that when you are in the midst of these extremely difficult decisions, decisions that likely are going to, that often split the church, that often require just unbelievable wisdom, Jesus saying, I don't abandon you then. I am there with you in power. Paul is saying, when you are gathered as a church with the power of the Lord Jesus, this is, you're going to need some authority and some power to enact what I'm asking you to do. And so, um, when you are assembled, when you come together, Paul's saying, I'm present with you in spirit. You know where I stand. The power of Christ is present. This is what you're going to, you're going to need divine power to carry out what needs to be done. And this disciplinary action, this process, involves the entire community. And this is what Paul says to do. Hand this person over to Satan that his spirit might be saved on the day of the Lord Jesus. Now, as I, as I preempted this section, I said these are some very difficult passages of text. This is one of those very difficult passages of text. What does that mean? There are a lot of very, very legitimate views. I'll give you my own, but there are some very legitimate views. But the first thing that we should note is that this statement, hand over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, assumes that Satan serves in some way as God's agent of discipline. So as Luther said, the devil is God's devil. So somehow Satan is God's agent of discipline. Yeah, whoa. First Timothy, Paul writes this. He says, By rejecting this, the, the, um, certain truths that Paul had been t- saying, he says, By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. And then in Second Corinthians twelve seven, your notes say twelve seventy. There is no twelve seventy in Second Corinthians twelve seven. Um, Paul says that there was a messenger of Satan given to me to buffet me that I might not be proud. Um, so. These texts kind of help us understand a little bit of what's what's going on. Um, 
And so, this is then, I believe, to treat the person, so to hand them over to Satan, um, really is putting them outside of the care and support of the church, that they forfeit the right to participate in um, the, the church fellowship, certainly the, the, the Lord's Supper, the table of the Lord, and they are handed over for punishment, as we see in Second Thessalonians um, Verse three, chapter three, verse six, we read this. Now, we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you have received from us. And so, um, this idea of, and we'll deal with this in greater detail next week, um, but there is this distance that is um, uh, is enacted. So that's the first thing. But then this idea of destruction of the flesh. So somehow we hand them over to Satan. Um, there is this separation or this treating them, I, I would say probably treating them as an unbeliever. Um, instead of treating them as a brother and exhorting them in the word, we treat them as an unbeliever because they're acting like one. And we they need to hear the gospel. For the destruction of the flesh. Now, many would say that this destruction of the flesh would be a reference to that turn them over to Satan and they will, if they don't repent, they'll die um, by God's judgment. And I suppose there's, there's some good evidence. Ananias and Sapphira would be really, really good examples of that. And also Paul, when he's talking about the Lord's Supper, he's saying those who acted, take this in an unworthy manner, um, some of them get sick and some have died. So I think there is some, some good evidence for that. I just struggle with this idea that their spirit might be saved. The next clause where it says their spirit might be saved. So I'm, I'm hesitant to endorse that view. I think that the idea of the destruction of the flesh would be the destruction of their sinful nature. In fact, the NIV would translate it that way. In fact, we see the same word translated as sinful nature um, in various translations. And I think, turn this person over to Satan, put them aside, treat them as as a tax collector or an unbeliever so that um, outside of the protective care and nurture of the fellowship community, of of the Christian community, um, they will be buffeted to the point where their sinful nature um, is destroyed and they will then come to the realization that they need the loving care of the community of Christ. Uh, perhaps Job would be a good example of this, right? You, can't dis- you, can, you can buffet him, do whatever you want, but you can't take his life. And all of this so that his spirit might be saved. I believe that Paul's hope is that the shock of judgment by the church and the resultant vulnerability to Satan would drive the man to repentance. As one cast out, this individual becomes an outsider who is to be treated differently from an insider, a church member. That is, that the person is not exhorted as a believer, but evangelized as an unbeliever. I think that's the general idea. And then Paul says... 
that a spirit might be saved in the day of the Lord. Such painful measures are enacted with the goal of restoration and ultimately salvation. In other words, um, the church is not to be punitive for the sake of being punitive. It is to be punitive for the sake of restoration. That's the goal. The goal is restoration of this man. Paul loves this individual. I personally believe that in 2 Corinthians, we see that this man did repent, but that's another another subject, and I'm not going to go there right now. I believe that the man repented and that the Corinthian church received him back. Um, but the goal is to restore the man. And that's always the goal of church discipline. So I'm going to conclude with a... a a fairly lengthy conclusion. There are a number of, of points, and the first one is very basic. And the first very basic application, if you will, or uh, conclusion is this, that there is a Christian sexual ethic. I say that uh, for those who may be here, those may be listening online, or may read this or hear it um, on audio, that Maybe today it is pronounced that, listen, we're consenting adults, we can do whatever we want. That's not a biblical ethic. There is a Christian ethic, and it is derided by many. And let me say this, not only is it mocked and derided by many, it is deemed hateful by many, and more so are holding to this view, that to say, to put a limit on one's sexual expression is hateful. You hate me, you deny who I am as a person, and you ought to be silenced. This is more and more uh, the way things are. If you have not read Carl Truman's new book, The Triumph, Triumph of the Modern Self, I would highly recommend it. It's a dense book. You will not read it at night before you go to bed. It's not above your heads, but it is dense. But he does an amazing job of tracing this. So, or at least listen to Carl Truman talk about his book. That might be better. He's all over, it'd be all over YouTube somewhere. But there is a Christian sexual ethic and it is derided and mocked by many. Oh, you're just puritanical or you're old-fashioned or you're Victorian or you're a prude or whatever that might be. But we now live in a day where to say that there is a, a, a limit to sexual expression is dangerous and you are a hateful person and you ought to be silenced and you should be fined and you have no voice. But we are ruled by not by the wisdom of men, but by the wisdom of God and Christ and Him crucified. So let me just make this statement. There is indeed a Christian sexual ethic. It is narrow in the sense, it's not whatever we want it to be, but as I stated at the beginning, a man and a wife in the covenant of marriage. Today, I don't even think I can say between a husband and a wife because the way those terms are defined. So the first application, there is a Christian sexual ethic. The second conclusion to help summarize what we're going through here or what we've discussed so far is that Paul addresses the man and his sin 
But that's more in the background. Paul's more concerned with how the church is dealing with it. That the church has tolerated it. So the man and, and his issues are in the background. They're not ignored. But they're not at the forefront. The forefront is the church. The church is not dealing with this. So that would be the second kind of concluding summary of this chapter. The, the, the third maybe application then would be that discipline is an act of love. Discipline is an act of love. And Hebrews 13 will descri- define that. We've already talked about y'all do it with your kids. Y'all do it with your dogs, right? You know, don't pee on the floor, right? And you take measures to make sure that your dog doesn't disobey, right? You do it with your dogs. It's an act of love. We discipline our children. Now, discipline can be enacted unlovingly. I don't deny that. And again, we can see that in human relationships as well. But just because it's misused does not invalidate its truthfulness. And I would probably say that everybody who has been the recipient of discipline would always say it was done unlovingly. The next kind of application or um, maybe teaching point here um, is that discipline, church discipline, um, can be administered both informally and formally. So let me briefly deal with this. I, I may get to it next week, I'm not certain, so I'm going to at least mention it here. But informal church discipline. Um, We did a class downstairs, a Bible study on church discipline. At the beginning of the class, I asked, have any of you ever um, been the subject of church discipline? And nobody raised their hand. When I came to the end of the study, I asked the same question. How many of you have been subject to church discipline? And everybody raised their hand. This would be informal church discipline. So informal church discipline can be a simple Bible study where we exhort one another, hey brother, hey sister, you know, how are you doing with your life? You know, are you, are, are, are you being faithful to the Lord? How's your prayer life? Are you, are, are you loving your wife as Christ loved the church? Are you respecting your husband? It's like, well, nah, you know what I could do? That's church discipline. We are forming one another. We are helping one another. This sermon, hopefully at some point, um, served to exhort us as a church and as individuals to follow Christ more faithfully. So if I were to say, how many of you have been the subject of church discipline? If you've sat here in this service, we would all probably, unless you slept, um, we've all, we would all raise our hands. This is informal church discipline and it happens all the time. Maybe over a cup of coffee, you're sitting down and, and somebody's, you know, how are you doing with your anger? And they're like, going, man, I just blew up. And the, you encourage them and you exhort them and you show them in the scripture about God's understanding of, of, of temper and what have you. And you just, and, and you have a cup of coffee and, and, and that's church discipline. That's what we would call informal church discipline. And it happens all the time. There's formal church discipline and that's exemplified in this text. And that is when the church actually holds a meeting, and enacts the harsh reality of excommuning somebody, um, turning them over to Satan 
so that their body might be destroyed, but they might, their spirit might be saved on the day of the Lord. It doesn't happen very often, but it has happened here very, very rarely. And it is perhaps the most grievous, I would say probably the most, one of the most grievous things we have ever had to do. Um, as a church, we all gathered and we all sat down and we all came to a conclusion. I asked for fasting and prayer before we gathered and we did and this is what we had to do. Was it done perfectly? I, I think it was done faithfully. I believe that Christ was in our midst and he guided us. But most of the time, um, you know, once somebody repents, then, you know, we're, we're good. Let's go on in the Lord. So there is both informal and formal church discipline. And then finally, let me remind you that discipline is a means of grace. And it is a means of grace because it points us to Christ and it causes us or enables us or it is a tool by which God uses that we might grow in him and all of the benefits of salvation. Our Father, we give you praise and we give you thanks this day. You have loved us. You have not abandoned us to our own desires and to our own wills. You have not abandoned us to a solo walk even as we just, it's just me and Jesus. You've put us into a community that will help us. Lord, I pray that we lovingly guide one another, usually over a cup of coffee or a Bible study or a text encouraging, Lord. Let us be faithful to encourage one another and exhort one another to, to, uh, into love and to good works. And Lord, if, and if it is ever necessary or when it becomes necessary again, Lord, I pray that you would give us the strength to, and the wisdom to do what you've called us to do. And I pray, Father God, that we would first mourn over our own sin. It's easy to look around and say, oh, look at that person. Lord, teach us to say, look at me and mourn and grieve for our rebellion against you. And then repent and be restored and assured of that restoration. We thank you that you restore us, Father God, that you do not hold our sins against us, but you forgive us. Lord, I pray that there are any here today that have wandered, that they would come back to you and call upon your name. We thank you, Father God, for, Lord, I know that I've sinned against you in grievous ways and you've restored me. And I thank you for that. Thank you that you did not leave me there and abandon me in such a place. So, Lord, I pray that you be merciful to us. Grant us your presence and your favor. We ask this in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen.